to focus on the crucifixion of Jesus, the fact of it, the purpose of it, and what it accomplished. And then next Sunday, of course, we will recognize and celebrate the fact of and the purpose of and the accomplishment of the resurrection. And then after that, we will be back in Acts for an extended period of time. For a church like ours that seeks to be gospel-centered and that begs explanation, a church that cares deeply about the gospel every week, every day, frankly, that we believe the story of the scriptures from beginning to end tells the story of the gospel. As we understand them comprehensively, they move in four basic outline points, creation, that God made all things in perfection for His own glory, and primarily that His image bearers would enjoy Him and reflect His glory. But those image bearers rejected His glory. They fell from it. They rejected the Almighty Creator who had made them, and they fell from relationship with Him. Now, God's glory was not eclipsed. God's glory always is. Nothing can eclipse the glory of God. But mankind, His image bearers, failed to esteem His glory, thinking that this would lead them to joy, to self-actualization, to use an anachronism, to find their own way, to deify themselves, to find joy and happiness. Of course, the opposite happened. They fell into twisted ruin and misery. But as we know from the fullness of the revelation of the Scriptures, this was God's intention from the beginning to create a world where grace would not just be a theoretical concept, but grace would be something that could be understood for, it could be felt, and it could be tasted for these ruined image bearers having fallen from glory would have the opportunity for rescue. God promised redemption immediately after His image bearers fell from His glorious grace. And then for millennia, the world lay in sin and error, pining, waiting, longing, hoping. And eventually, the third movement of the Scriptures after creation and fall is redemption, the promise fulfilled, and now those of us who have experienced the redemption of Jesus proclaim His power to redeem and await the finality of our redemption, the restoration of all things. This is the subject of the Scriptures, God's redemption of His people and Christ, His very intention to make His grace known, His glorious grace known, that we might know Him and love Him and esteem Him as our all-satisfying Creator and Savior. And we find ourselves here in this third movement of the Scriptures, this third point of the Scriptures, in fact, the major one, the one that extends the longest, the promise of and fulfillment of redemption. And here in John chapter 19, we find the, the crux of it, the, the central feature of it, the fulfillment of it. 
as a preacher, as an orator, you want to make people feel texts, right? You want to make people understand them intellectually, but, but far more than that. We talked last week about Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9, and we also referenced Romans chapter 3, where Paul talks about how humanity will not seek for God. Everyone has turned aside and become worthless. Their very tongues possess the venom of asps. And I said to you last week that in that hinge point in Romans chapter 3, where Paul clarifies that those who are characterized by such sin, that they might find hope and redemption as they trust Jesus, that Paul was experiencing and writing what we call theological exaltation was the term I used with you last week. Paul wanted in his theological writing for people to, to feel things, not just to intellectualize them. And, and therein lies a danger for a church like ours that seeks to be gospel-centered all the time, to, to see the gospel as a central subject of Scripture, to look through its lens into our marriages, into the way we raise our children, to the way that we carry ourselves at work, the way we use our money, that everything we do should be run through the lens of the hope we have in Christ. But the danger, perhaps, for a church like ours, and and we have felt it and we have seen it, is that we will just intellectualize these things. So I'm so thankful for the way that Greg even read these first 18 verses in John 19 to us a bit ago so that we could feel them a bit. And if all the longing of humanity was anticipating this moment, the promise of redemption that was given in the garden now is about to come to fulfillment. The longing of humanity groaning inwardly, as Paul says in Romans 8, was awaiting this moment. And in truth, all the groaning sense for for primarily God's fallen image bearers, fallen from glory, are still groaning. And here in John chapter 19, we find the answer to that groaning. The only thing that can can deal with it here in in John 19. And, And so, the capstone of the biblical story is not revelation. The high point of the biblical story is right here in these next two chapters and in our next two weeks of worship, both today and next Sunday. And so, with all of that in mind, let the Holy Spirit now speak to us, and may we not just know this and and intellectualize it, but may the Holy Spirit now help us to feel the weight and wonder of this passage. Let's read together. This is God's holy word. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, he said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, and perhaps in keeping with the way Mark describes this scene in Mark chapter 15, 
Jesus cried out, It is finished! And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him, signifying that they were still alive. When they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers, just to make sure, pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, and that you also may believe. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken." And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had been yet laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. May God bless to us the reading of his holy word. First thing this passage reveals to us is that Jesus settled our debt. In verse 28, notice the two words, finish and fulfill. And then later in verse 30, Jesus proclaims for all the surrounding people to hear, it is finished. The word that underlies these three expressions in English, finished, fulfill, and then again in verse 30, it is finished, comes from a Greek word that you have probably heard before in the preaching of John 19. That Greek word tetelestai, or its various forms, was a word that was used in Greek to indicate that a debt had been settled. Archaeologists have found old debt receipts, and across some of these receipts is that word written, tetelestai, which means that that debt, that account, had been settled. Remember when I was a kid, our church that I had grown up in, we were on our second auditorium by this point. My dad had come to Cincinnati in 1965 to take over a small church, about 25 people or so. My parents loved to tell the stories of those early days where they barely survived. They didn't have enough money to pay my dad, so they would pay them in groceries. But eventually the church grew, and they built a couple of different little auditoriums. And I remember as a kid, when we paid off that second auditorium, I was probably six or seven or something like that, 
and they got a big galvanized tub, one of those ones you could hold, not like one, like not like a feeding trough, but one you maybe carry grain in into a barn. And uh, they put the deed to the church or the mortgage record or whatever it was into that galvanized tub, and they lit it on fire. Now, the coolest thing for me as like a six or seven-year-old was that there was fire in church, right? You got Pentecostal for a few moments. But, but for the grown-ups who really realized what was happening, who understood money, like the only thing I knew back then is a quarter could be put into like a gum slot and you'd get gum out. That's about the extent of money to me. But for grown-ups, you understand what money does and you understand the weight of debt. And, and for everybody in the building who had any sense of that, it was a very special moment because they remembered that this building that God had provided for them, that he had actually given them the resources to pay off, it was theirs, free and clear. That, that debt had been settled. That account was, was finished. Those of us who have been grown-ups long enough know the weight of debt. Probably after a lot of us got married and we didn't have any cash, we accrued some of that debt, though our parents told us not to. I remember feeling the weight of that. I remember being in grad school and trying to keep the bills paid and keep the lights on in our cruddy little apartments, thinking, how in the world are we ever going to survive? When we first got married, we agreed that we would alternate vacations between the beach and the mountains, because that's how we grew up. She went to the beach, and I went to the mountains growing up, and so we thought, well, we'll have all kinds of fun as married people, and then we got married and had all kinds of debt, and we, we couldn't even like go out to eat, let alone go on vacation. We felt the weight of that. It was, it was not very fun. We feel the weight of things that we owe to other people. You know this whenever you've been forgiven, perhaps by a close friend or a spouse or a parent. Knowing what you have done has created a schism, a separation between you and another. And you know the weight of that. You, you feel it. Yet the Scriptures tell us the story of the fall of humanity and the need for redemption, we read them with eyes that see and minds that understand and hearts that feel the weight of sin and the debt that comes with it. The 39 books of the Old Testament make us feel that as we read the story of Israel, despite the fact that they had been given great and precious promises all the way back to Abraham and Genesis chapters 11 and 12. Most of the Old Testament is a story of God's promise to Israel. And, and then one might think logically that because God had made them His own and given them such privileges and promises that they would follow Him with fidelity and, and joy and hearts that were tender. But the story of Israel is anything but. You see again and again their sin and, and the weight of punishment that often came alongside that. And even the Mosaic law itself, God's covenant with His people that He gave them at Sinai. He made provisions in that law that sacrifices could be made in their stead so that their blood did not have to be spilled, but rather the blood of a bull or a goat or a sheep could be spilled and take their place to stand in their stead. So Israel's worship even Israel's religious code was a reminder of the penalty of sin. 
and all the longing and all the expectation of the Scriptures points forward to these three verses, we can say, I think, with full honesty. The sin of Adam and Eve, these two humans created with perfect free will, who knew what it was like to dwell in the pleasure of the Almighty. Such a treacherous sin they committed. What would happen to them and to their offspring? And to the millions of sons and daughters who had lived in the intervening period, multiplied by their millions or billions of sin, the debt of which cries out for justice. What of those sins? Could there be hope? Could there be redemption? Even with the religious code that the Jews had been given, they couldn't keep it. It could not make them whole. For by the teaching of the law came the reminder of sin and its corresponding debt. But Jesus, whom John the Baptist called the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, now hangs between God and man, suspended between them to become their mediator, to take their place. And he cries out with a formerly dry throat, now slaked momentarily by the sour wine that the Roman executioners would have shared to amuse themselves and slake their thirst in the midst of this hot Middle Eastern day. With formerly parched lips, now momentarily slaked, he cries out that all might hear and that we might hear today, it is finished. And then he willingly gives up his spirit. No one, as he says in John 10, could take it from him. He laid it down of his own accord. The import of these verses, the importance of this, of this statement, if we don't take time to, to rest here for a minute and and meditate upon it, we will miss it. This means that every sin that had been committed, every human that had fallen from grace before and after, their, their sin cried out for justice, for judgment. But for all who prior to Jesus had place their faith in the living God, like Abraham and some of his offspring, and all who since have done so, most of us here today, our account with God has been burned to ashes. As Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, Jesus took the record of debt that stood against us and it was true. It was verifiable in every point. Paul says that he nailed it to the cross. 
If we have trusted Jesus, or if you will trust Jesus, your account, it's settled. Redemption has been accomplished. Jesus did not die on the cross to potentially save some. He died to save us definitively. And that is why we are here today and we we hope in Him. This means that every prideful thought, even those that you hide, those prideful thoughts will not condemn you. Every moment of lust where you have longed after another illicitly and privately to your shame, those will not be held against you. Every unkind word, how many have there been? Every inclination towards selfishness, how often does that characterize us? Every word of gossip, every act of unkindness, every moment of cowardice, every ounce of anxiety, none of that can separate us from God. For Jesus, our Savior, has borne our sin and has accomplished our salvation. Our debt has been settled. And my brothers and sisters, this is our hope. Jesus settled our debt. Humanity had been longing for it, groaning, awaiting redemption, and then Jesus came and accomplished it. And all of us look back upon the same moment, and in our groaning we find here hope to be found. I will say to you, though, Primarily today, I'm not going to spell out a bunch of application to you for mostly I want us just to rest in what it is that Jesus accomplished. That this is the hope of everybody that is around you. Your cubicle mates, your grandparents, your parents, your brothers and your sisters, your friends, all those who are seeking to establish their own righteousness by their own efforts. It is a futile road that they are walking. And not only is it futile, it is miserable. But here in John chapter 19, verse 30, As we look back upon what Jesus proclaims for all to hear, and by John's pen for us to see today, it is finished. It has been accomplished. And therein lies the hope of the world. Everyone around you is seeking to establish their own righteousness. Now, whether they do that under the guise of religion or not, it doesn't matter. Self-righteousness is a disease that courses through the veins of every son and daughter of Adam and Eve. 
And just like every son and daughter longed for the moment when the account could be settled, it is still the same now. So may the Holy Spirit give us eyes to see our neighbors for for who they are and what it is that they are struggling to do. They are seeking to establish by their own efforts, their own goodness, their own self-righteousness, and thereby somehow hedge their bets that if there is a day of judgment, and there is, that they might be found acceptable in the sight of God by their efforts and Jesus here hangs between God and man on this hill, between two sinners who justly deserved their punishment, Jesus never having sinned, Jesus there to deal with their sin and our sin and proclaims the debt has been settled, it is accomplished. And so I said to you that I I mostly today want you to rest in that. Such a truth enables repentance. We say here regularly that we are once regenerate, that means born again, we are once regenerate, a once for all reality, but we are always repenting. In this statement from Jesus in John chapter 19, verse 30, that it is finished, our debt has been paid for, our account is settled. This allows you, and this and this alone allows you to lead such a life of repentance. For you are no longer trusting in your self-righteousness, you are trusting in the righteousness of Jesus. This means young people, whenever your parents point out to you, errors in your ways. You don't have to run away. And so, parents, be careful in those moments that primarily your children are not seeking to to please you or to measure up to your personal standards, but that just as you have been forgiven by Christ for the sake of the glory of God, so too your children must feel not only the weight of their sin but the possibility of forgiveness. And when you call them to repentance, parents, Be careful that you are not setting up an external, exterior law which bears down upon them, but you point them to the hope of Jesus. In some way, all of the discipline of your children, whether they are young or older, must contain this element that you are pointing your children back to hope, to encourage repentance, and so young people do this. But but for us grown-ups, it's the same, right? It's amazing for those of us who can theologize relatively well, like a church like ours could, could hold our own. Like, maybe we should do that across the city. We should have, like, a Bible quiz contest. Like, I think we would do really well. You guys would be a crack squad. Isn't it amazing that those of us who know a lot of theology, we can connect the dots. We can tell the story from beginning to end. We even know the minor prophets in order. Yet we still hide We hide from each other. We hide from our spouses. Our reflex whenever sin is discovered is defensiveness, to explain away. So you see, the proclamation of Jesus here in John chapter 19, verse 30, is not only a promise of eternal justification, 
This is legal language. If we trust Jesus, we can be acquitted in the great courtroom of God when the gavel comes down. The proclamation for those of us who trust Jesus is acquittal, not guilty. But it has implications for every day, not just that final scene of our lives when we stand before God, but now. If your account has been settled, if your debt has been paid, do not hide. Deal with sin seriously and hopefully. Jesus settled our debt and we need no longer live under the curse of self-righteousness. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. For Jesus, I think in this passage, demonstrates to us that He has conquered our self-righteousness. In verse 31, we see that it was the day of preparation. This is the day before the Sabbath. The Passover would have been on Friday. Jesus would have eaten the Last Supper on Thursday evening. So in Jewish culture, the day begins at sundown. So Passover, religiously speaking, began on Thursday evening. Jesus partook of the Last Supper with His disciples, was arrested overnight as He went into the garden to pray and to be strengthened by His Father, taken away to the temple to deal with the Jewish religious authorities and then to Pilate, the Roman authority, and then in the morning would be crucified after the judgment. So this is Friday. But by sundown, Sabbath would begin in Jewish culture. And this was a special Sabbath because it was during Passover. It was a high Sabbath day. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses tells the people that if a person is executed and hanged on a tree, they didn't crucify people like the Romans did, but if a person was executed for their sins, if it called for capital punishment, that they were not to leave the body hanging, dangling there overnight, for it would create a curse for the land, which is so interesting, right? The Son of God had come as a real man and allowed Himself by His own good grace to be suspended between them and God to deal with their sin, and yet they are concerned about a little small angle of the Mosaic law here. It's, it's amazing how their self-righteousness shows up here. So they go to Pilate, this one that they had sought to manipulate, as Greg read to us a bit ago, and asks that all three that had been crucified would have their legs broken. Well, why is this? This wasn't just further torture. When a person was crucified, their hands or more likely their wrists were nailed to this cross beam, and their feet likewise would have been doubled up and a nail would have been driven through the feet to secure it to the pole that went into the ground. For a while, the crucified person would push himself or herself up with the strength of their legs so that they could breathe, for if they didn't, they would sag. And not only would the agony of the spikes driven through their hands or wrists be excruciating, but as they sagged, their chest cavity would begin to fill with fluid. They wouldn't be able to breathe. 
And so in agony, with the spike driven through their feet, they would raise themselves up seeking to find relief. This could go on, and this is nasty to even think about, but this could go on for days. And the Romans took great delight in watching offenders suffer. Sometimes they would leave them on so long that the birds of the air would come along and pick their bones clean. They were that treacherous. But the Jews, in an effort to to not break any jot or tittle of the Mosaic law, wants to make sure that these three offenders, in their eyes, would die before sundown so they could be taken down. So the thieves on the cross next to Jesus on his left and his right, one of which we know from the rest of the Gospels had trusted Jesus, they had their legs broken so that the final blow may come. But Jesus is already dead. To fulfill the Scriptures, that His bones would not be broken. God allowing Him to die in the place of ruined sinners will not allow His Son to be torn apart. But just to make sure that He was dead, one of the soldiers takes a spear and drives it into His side and outpours water and blood. And John testifies to this, that this indeed is what happened, that this man really died. It is possible that by this time, heresy had begun to arise that Jesus did not really die. John wants to say, in fact, He really did. He was a real man who really died, which is integral, incredibly necessary to our understanding of the gospel. That one did die. One bore the full measure of God's wrath against sin as Jesus is called our propitiation. He bore the wrath of God in our place, and the penalty was brought down upon him, not because of his own offenses, but because of ours. And in verse 37, the fulfillment of all of this is to point forward to the fact that they, all who see him, will look on him whom they have pierced. Now, those who are around the cross saw that. Look with me, please, in Zechariah chapter 12. The Apostle John, who wrote these words that we are reading together, is referencing several passages from the Old Testament, and this is a key one, this notion of the piercing of the Son of God is a reference from Zechariah chapter 12. Like the rest of the prophets, Zechariah speaks words of judgment for the sins of God's covenant people. They have rejected Him and they deserve His judgment. But like the rest of the prophets, judgment will not be the final word. God will bring salvation to His evil people. And so in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 1, the burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel, thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within Him, Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The judgment is going to come down on the rest of the peoples. In verse 7, the prophet says, The Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. In verse 10, this is the key verse in this text. I will pour out on the house of David 
and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weeps bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And look in chapter 13, verse 1. The prophet says, On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. What is the significance of the water and the blood flowing from the side of Jesus, this one who died in our place? He cleanses us, and His blood covers us. Our blood should be spilled for our countless transgressions. What do we need? If we are going to be in God's family, if we are going to be priests here in this land, we need cleansing. It has been proven in autopsies that when one has experienced great trauma in the chest cavity, but there is no puncture, that fluid can build up around the linings of the lungs. And so probably what happened when this spear was driven into the side of Jesus, that it pierced not only the pericardial sac that surrounded the heart and therefore blood would come out, but the lining around the lungs. And so, so Jesus, in His death, under the great trauma that He experienced in His trial before His crucifixion and now that the effects of all that come pouring out. But the symbolic nature of this, as John reflects upon this as an old man, John would have written this gospel decades later, the hope of his friend, the hope of his Messiah, the hope of his Savior was that John and all those like us who trust Jesus can be washed clean and our sins can be covered with the blood of the Lamb of God. So John, who writes these words as one hoping in the exclusive power of Jesus to cleanse and cover, stands in stark contrast to these Jewish leaders who are more concerned about the bodies being taken down from the crosses so that they don't defile their land, which they think is holy, but we know was defiled. What did Jesus have to say of people like this? On the outside, they look great, but on the inside, they're dead. He likened them to, to tombs, to sepulchers. On, on the outside, it's like whitewashed marble, so to speak, but on the inside, they're, they're decaying. John saw himself in need of cleansing and covering, and these Jewish religious leaders cared only about their self-righteousness, somehow wanting to tip the scale so that God would find them acceptable. But the promise of Zechariah chapter 12 and Zechariah chapter 13 is that there would be a man who would come and he would be pierced, not for his own sins, but for the transgressions of others, they who deserve punishment. But he would provide salvation and they would wail because of the cost of their sin, but also in hope that their sins might be covered and cleansed. So some will look at Jesus and 
And Jesus is the great dividing line of history. This moment is the great dividing line of history. Some will look on Jesus, who was pierced, and accept Him as the exclusive hope for cleansing and covering. John will later say in Revelation chapter 1 that He will come on the clouds, and those who pierced Him, those who are responsible, those who don't turn to Him in faith and repentance, that they will wail because of Him. So, some will wail in contrition and find hope. Some will wail because the judgment will fall on them and they will have missed their opportunity for cleansing and covering. And so, I say to you, if you have not yet trusted Jesus, if you are seeking to establish your own self-righteousness, stop. There is no hope for such a course. Jesus has already suffered in your place. He was pierced for your transgressions. He who never broke one of God's laws, never transgressed one of God's precepts, suffered because you have and I have. And today could be the day of salvation for you. Trust Jesus. It's interesting as you read down in verses 38 through 42, these Two men who were part of the Jewish inner circle, the Jewish council, Joseph and Nicodemus. We find previous to this in John chapter 3 that Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. He did this because he was afraid of what his companions would think about him. They were growing even in the beginning of the Gospels to hate Jesus. They felt like he would take their place. He would take away their glory. They didn't care about the glory of God. They cared about their own glory. And they used the Mosaic law to establish their own glory. They used something good for evil purposes. But there were some among them who began to see Jesus as the fulfillment of all these Old Testament promises. So Joseph and Nicodemus, to some degree privately, but it would have been known that they did this thing, asked that they might have the body of Jesus. So Joseph takes the body of Jesus along with his friend Nicodemus, seemingly by this point have trusted Jesus as the only hope for their problem of sin and transgression. They put him in Joseph's own tomb, a rich man's tomb. And God symbolically here is saying that this one that he would not allow to be ravaged or torn apart would have a proper burial, for he was the eternal Son of God who came from glory. The Jewish people did not embalm bodies for the sake of preservation like their neighbors, the Egyptians, did. They covered them in powder-like spices and It's a great deal of spices here, 75 pounds worth, to take care of some of the stench that would come along with the decaying of the body. So they prepare him, wrap him, and they put him in his place. And herein we find not only a contrast between John, who knew that he needed cleansing and covering from Jesus, over against the Jewish leaders who are more worried about taking care of every jot and tittle, every final tiny little detail of the law, 
There's a contrast between John and the Jewish religious leaders, but there's also a contrast between the religious leaders in their own circle. Joseph and Nicodemus could have decided that they were going to follow their compatriots, that they were going to do what they did. They were going to hold firmly to what they had been granted by heritage. Joseph and Nicodemus would have been wealthy men, well-respected men. Their futures were secure. They were held in high esteem, and they never wanted for anything. But by showing allegiance to Jesus here, and I think we can say love, look look what Joseph did. He gave him his own expensive tomb. Nicodemus would have spent a great sum of money on this effort to take care of Jesus' body. Why? Their love showed their allegiance. Their their love and their attention showed their awareness of their own sin, and Jesus is the only remedy for that sin. And, And herein, they lie in stark contrast to their own brothers in this council. Jesus, who had had this discussion famously with Nicodemus back in John chapter 3, that that a man must be born again if he will see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus would have noodled on this for quite some time. And then finally, clearly came to the conclusion that Jesus was the only one who could save him. Jesus says in John chapter 3 that the Son of Man must be lifted up, just like Moses lifted the serpent in the wilderness. And all those who would look to Jesus could be saved Nicodemus came to the point that he realized that the poison that coursed through his veins, his own self-righteousness, would not lead him to acceptance before God, but would condemn him. And just like those poisonous snakes bit the Israelites for their rebellion, when looking at the bronze serpent, they could be rescued from the poisonous bites of those serpents. Nicodemus knew that he needed his poison dealt with. He needed an antidote. And when Jesus is lifted up, a much greater object of salvation than a bronze serpent ever could be. Nicodemus knew that the antidote was Jesus who would become his Savior and Joseph too. So what did they do? They laid aside the illusion that their efforts, their law-keeping could make them acceptable before God. And Jesus conquered their self-righteousness. And so... So, my brothers and sisters, that self-righteousness, as sons and daughters of Eve, it courses through the veins of all who have ever lived. And this explains why religion abounds. In a culture like ours, which is becoming increasingly post-Christian or secular, it is easy for us to say, well, by and large, people are, are doing away with the notion of a transcendent God who made all things, who calls people to account. But all you need to do is travel internationally, particularly outside the West, and realize that that by and large our, our culture globally, though diverse in its various expressions, is an incredibly religious earth, a religious globe, a religious planet on which we live. Why? Because everybody has this thing that we call conscience, this this notion that that one made us and we're responsible to him. Paul makes it clear in Romans chapter 1 that even who those who don't know the specific nature of biblical revelation still recognize that there's a God, and we're accountable to Him. So what has humanity done? 
whether they have the special revelation of the Christian Scriptures or whether they just have this notion that there is a God to whom they are accountable, they seek to establish their own righteousness by their own moral codes. But moral law-keeping cannot settle our account with God. That is why Jesus died. That's, that's John 19.30. The disease of self-righteousness will not lead to life. It will lead to condemnation and ruin. That's why Jesus cries out as He willingly gave up His life. It has been settled for you. It has been accomplished. Stop striving Stop seeking to establish your own righteousness. I've done that for you. For those of us who have trusted Jesus, whose accounts have been settled, who have been acquitted, who have been declared not guilty, who have been declared righteous in the sight of God, who have been reconciled to Him, whose sins have been propitiated for, we could go on and on. We still struggle with this, do we not? In this day where we reflect upon, meditate upon, and rest in the hope of the death and salvation of Jesus, we are to remember very carefully that we are not acceptable before God because of what we have done, but because of what He has done. Which means, as it has been famously said, that on your very best days, when you do everything well, when you wake up early to read your Bible, and you're caught up, like you're not behind on your yearly Bible reading plan. And you pray a thoughtful prayer that doesn't trend over into your tasks for the day. And you get the kids up early, and you do devotions with them, and you feed them whole wheat bread with butter that came from cows that grazed on a free range. And you get them to school early, with their homework completed and all their permission slips signed. And you love your spouse and you share the good news with your neighbor. And you do devotions again after dinner. And you watch like a Veggie Tales show together. And you get them to bed on time. And then you pray with your spouse before the evening comes. And you don't stay up too late. And you don't watch anything you shouldn't. And you don't even look at Facebook all day. And you don't turn on the TV other than Veggie Tales. That even on that day, that all of your righteous efforts will not make you acceptable to God. Only Jesus can make you acceptable to God. That your pride will not take over. That with a heart of gratitude, you look to Jesus and you hope in Him. But conversely, on your worst day, when you wake up late and you drive the kids to school, and though you should say, on the sign-in sheet at school that they're just late, you make up a lie and say you took them to the doctor. Because Lord forbid there be a tardy on their school record. And you curse, not metaphorically, literally, at drivers around you and your spouse. And you eat Hot Pockets for dinner. And you watch a show you shouldn't. And you spend three hours on social media. And you stay up too late. And you don't even think about God, let alone His Word, or talking to Him. On those days, which are bad, that you're still acceptable to God if you have trusted Jesus. For your righteousness that you seek to establish by your own efforts does not make you more or less acceptable to God. 
Now, I'm giving extremes, and if you've been around here long enough, you know that. None of us really ever have a perfect day, and hopefully none of us have very often days like I just described. But on your best day, when everything seems to go well, God doesn't love you more. And on your worst day, when you don't even think about God somehow, God doesn't love you less. Why? Because you've been accepted in His Son. Your account has been settled. Now, if you have not trusted Jesus, you will struggle with the ebb and flow of such days. On the days where you do well, you'll think pretty well of yourself, and your pride will condemn you. And on your worst days, whenever you feel desperate, this is God calling you to repentance, for you cannot establish your own. Jesus conquered our self-righteousness on the cross that we might turn to Him in faith and trust Him and Him alone. It is not enough merely to believe in Jesus. It is not enough merely to believe this story. James, the brother of Jesus, who had become the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, said that even the demons believe and shudder. It is enough, it's not enough merely to know this story and even to say, well, it's true. The question is, will you abandon any effort towards self-righteousness and rest in Jesus and Jesus alone? That is the question we all must answer. And so, frankly, I don't care that much if you've prayed a prayer at some point along the way. Prayers can't save you. Jesus is the only one who can save you. And if your confession today is that Jesus is your only hope of righteousness, my friends, be at rest But if your confession is not exclusively only, I am trusting Jesus and Jesus alone for righteousness, turn to Him today. Lastly, Jesus has not only settled our debt, He has not only conquered our self-righteousness. Jesus rested and waited, and that leads us to next week. Where is Jesus? Well, His body is in a rich man's tomb. Where is His spirit? It is with His Father. A celebration is going on in heaven where the work of redemption has been accomplished and Jesus is now at rest. In certain theological circles, it has been said that Jesus had to go to hell to have His sins burned off. The Scriptures do not teach that anywhere. Jesus told the thief on the cross elsewhere in the Gospels that you will be with me today in paradise. That's where Jesus is. He's... he's celebrating and experiencing the kind smile and pleasure of His Father for these couple of days that He is in the grave, three partial days. And it's interesting because it's the Sabbath, right? Recreation has just occurred. What happened in the beginning? God worked for six days. On the seventh day, what did He do? He rested because he was tired. God doesn't get tired. He rested to show that he was pleased with what he had done and to establish a ritual for us that we would have rest physically and spiritually. What does Jesus now do after his work of recreation? He rests and he waits. And next week we will learn the rest of the story. So John 19 teaches us that Jesus settled our deep, deep, incalculable debt. Jesus conquered our self-righteousness, and then Jesus rested and waited. 
because the resurrection, which we will talk about and celebrate next week, is the second part of the good news. Jesus died to deal with our sin, to take our punishment, and he was raised victorious over sin and death. Look with me, please, in Isaiah 53 as we close today. The longing of all God's people is spelled out well here in Isaiah 53. Now, they missed Jesus for who He was and what He did. They were looking for glory, and Jesus taught them by His teaching and by His life that before glory, there had to be the dealing with of sin. The prophet says, who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, verse 7, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and for, as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord, verse 10, to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That's why Jesus died, to take care of our sin. And that is why the writer of Hebrews can say this about Jesus. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the wraith that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And this sentence almost doesn't make sense, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That is who your Savior is, and that is what he has accomplished for you. All you who have trusted in him, rest and hope in him today. And if you have not, today is the day. The Spirit is pursuing you. Turn to him in faith and repentance, and you will find hope forevermore. Let us pray together.
Lord Jesus.